The Exodus Express has now arrived at chapter 5 on this rapid run-through of the second book of the Bible. Last week, we saw how Moses was taken by God through a process of denial, resistance, and exploration of God's plans and purposes for his life and the lives of his people Israel, to acceptance, albeit rather grudging, of what God was asking him to do. The passage we're considering today looks at the first bit of this plan being put into action by Moses and Aaron and the response it provokes. Moses and Aaron have taken God's plan to the elders of Israel, as instructed, who have believed them. And it says in verse 31 of chapter 4, when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. So the Israelites, or at least their leaders, were on board. The distinction between leaders and people is important, as we'll see later in chapter 5. I've entitled this talk, Who Says? Because... Just as we saw last week, this bit of the narrative is partly concerned with clarifying who God is and why we need to know. God spent a lot of time explaining to Moses who he is. He understands that our need to know who he is is important. He doesn't make light of it. When I was a little girl and had the now, to me, unimaginable temerity to ask my mother why I should do any given thing, her response was always, because I said so, (laughs) which seemed woefully inadequate to me as responses go. I had the wisdom not to voice this doubt even then. (laughs) They breed them scary in the West Highlands, I can tell you. Possibly not as scary as they breed them in Fife, but anyway. (laughs) But God does not give the because-I-said-so response to Moses, and neither does he to us. He explains who he is with patience and allows Moses considerable leeway, not even giving up on him when he actively asks God to send someone else. Eventually, as my mother used to, he does say, just do it, and Moses wisely obeys. So did I. Let's read chapter 5 up to the end of verse 21. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues and with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. 
Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today? as before. Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy. That's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get back to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Having spoken to the Israelite elders, Moses and Aaron then go as instructed by God to Pharaoh. And as God warned in chapter 4, verse 21, it didn't go well. Who is, uh, is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? They didn't make that noise. I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Let's concentrate on two ways of looking at this verse. For this Pharaoh... The Israelite people are slaves, a useful commodity to be used and abused as he saw fit. They are chattels. He, on the other hand, is one of the most powerful men in the ancient world. His word is law. He always gets what he wants when he wants it, and it has ever been thus. Life and literature down the ages are littered with people who wield enormous power and come to believe in their inalienable right to it. Not for them... The adage, to be nice to people on the way up because you don't know who you'll meet on the way down. They are never coming down. So when Pharaoh asks who the Lord is and why he should obey him, it is the question of an unbeliever, and an unbeliever who has no reason whatsoever to answer to anyone, much less to the God of an enslaved people. There is a tribe on the island of Tana in Vanuatu, who worship Prince Philip as a divine being. This is extraordinary, but it's absolutely true. There was a fascinating documentary on Channel 4 about it in 2007. Since I wrote this bit of the talk, there has been a terrible cyclone in Vanuatu, a very, very destructive, life-destroying cyclone. So please do pray for the people. So let's imagine we're a power-wielding businessman, let's say Rupert Murdoch or Richard Branson, and some of their workers go to them and say that Prince Philip has commanded that Rupi or Rick give them time off, so they go and worship him and offer sacrifices to him. He'll be really cross if he's denied and will send plagues and stuff. This isn't a negotiation, by the way. There's no Prince Philip wonders if you'd mind awfully if, or could he possibly prevail upon you too, etc., etc. It's a command. Well, I know what I'd say if I were Rupi or Rick. This could well be the level of absurdity Pharaoh felt on hearing Moses' request. Your God, 
He's not my God. Why on earth do you think I would do what your God says? Take a hike. No. And of course, we see the same today. We're only too aware that the Lord whom we worship and reverence is an irrelevance to many. They don't believe he exists, and they question the intelligence of anybody who does. They feel about the God of Israel, our Lord and Heavenly Father, as we do about Prince Philip being a divine being, and as Pharaoh felt about Moses' Lord. So what should our response be? In theory, we're a lot more tolerant in 2015 of other people's beliefs than we have ever been. We've been taught to respect the thinking of others even when we disagree with it, or at least we pay lip service to respecting the belief of others. The comedian Milton Jones says this in one of his 10-second sermon books, I'm quite prepared for you to say what you want about my faith, as long as I can say what I like about your lack of it. There's a 1974 spy thriller I loved when I was young called The Tamarind Seed, which starred Julie Andrews not being a nun, which was a little shocking, and an Egyptian heartthrob actor called Omar Sharif, who played a Russian double agent. Or was he? Anyway, at one point he says something to her, to which her response is, God forbid. His reply, completely in passing, is, how can he when he doesn't exist? And then they go on with their conversation. I was a pre-Christian in those far-off days, but strangely, that exchange always stuck with me. We have no right as Christians to be offended or hurt if we receive a dismissive reply to a God says statement. Our responsibility is not to be offended, but to demonstrate who God is by our actions, our attitudes, and our compassion for others. So I recommend Stewardship's 40 Acts to you, as I've done several times. These acts of generosity for Lent have less to do with money than we might expect, and far more to do with generosity of heart. As Toby asked rhetorically the week before last, would we rather win an argument or a friend? We will never argue anyone into the kingdom. Back to verse 2. To the believer, Pharaoh's response is heart-stopping, not least because we already know what's going to happen because God has told us if he answers as he does. Those of us who believe are or should be, in awe of the words God says. Those are two big monosyllabic words. In the vineyard, we believe that the gifts of the Spirit Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 particularly are as available to us today as they were in the time in which Paul was writing. Do read these chapters again. They can be rather eclipsed by 1 Corinthians 13, which is arguably the best-known passage from the epistles, read as it is at very many weddings. But they are key chapters in understanding why we do what we do in this church, as many other churches do too. If God does say, then we do very well to listen. As hearers of God says words, we are called on to weigh what is said to us. It is not incumbent upon us to receive such a word, nor is it arrogant to consider whether it is right or not, simply because it is prefaced with 
God says. We can, as Christians, abuse the God says line horribly, and I've heard it done too often. A common one is God says we should get married. Let me say this. Really, if God has said it to only one of you, he hasn't said it. We need to be very careful indeed about bandying about the words God says. If in doing so, we effectively put pressure on others to do what we want. We may not recognize that's what we're doing, and God is infinitely gracious. But it's a very serious thing to do. We must approach prophecy and words of knowledge with humility and wisdom. We must preface our words with, I believe God is saying, or I believe God may be saying. That does not detract from what that prophetic word or word of knowledge may be. Rather, it acknowledges the gravity of giving prophetic words in the name of the almighty, everlasting, and omnipotent God. The second commandment in Exodus 20 verse 7 says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. I think this is often interpreted rather narrowly in terms of not using God's name as a swear word. I believe it also refers to what I've been talking about. We are all imperfect hearers of words and imperfect givers of words. We are all, as Christians, works in progress, as we've said many times from up here. We never stop being works in progress. Some of us have progressed rather further than others. This is a maturity issue, not an age issue. I've known Christians advanced in years whose maturity is woefully wanting. And I've known Christians whose wisdom belies their relatively few years on the planet. We all make mistakes. We show maturity and grace when we forgive mistakes which have cost us and hurt us personally in the sure and certain knowledge that we will make mistakes which will cost and will hurt others. Matthew 7, verse 12, uh, Jesus says this, In everything do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. That's a very easy statement to concur with, and it's a very challenging one actually to do. But let's accept the challenge and bear with one another as we do so. Moses did not preface his God says word to Pharaoh with, I think God may be saying. It's true, he didn't. But we're not Moses. All that from one verse. We've only got two and a half chapters to go, but don't panic because Toby and I have a train to catch at 3.15, so we'll be done by about two. (laughs) Moses and Aaron try again to persuade Pharaoh in verse 3, but he's not having it. In fact, he's so infuriated by the request that he punishes the whole Israelite people by doubling their workload and effectively asking the impossible of them. Do you remember when you were at school and the actions of one or two brought about detention for the whole class? Everyone knew who was responsible for whatever crime had been committed, but it's wrong to snitch and tell tales, right? So everybody gets punished because the people in question don't have the guts to own up. Do you remember that? The injustice of it? The resentment? Pharaoh makes jolly sure that the entire Israelite people are extremely hacked off with Moses and Aaron, but unlike people in our classes, they did own up. 
He's not responsible for their workload increasing. Moses and Aaron are. They ask for time off to make sacrifices to God, which is Israelites speak for, we want a jolly at your expense, Pharaoh, old boy, so don't blame me. So they don't blame Pharaoh. They blame Moses and Aaron. Verse 21. May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. This is take two for Moses. Remember the Israelite in chapter 1, verse 14, who says, Who made you ruler and judge over us? This is a better the devil you know scenario. It wasn't great being enslaved in Egypt, but it was a darn sight better than it is now, no thanks to you. Remember, Moses and Aaron cleared all this with the Israelite leaders at the end of chapter 3, but it would appear that the people were not in the know, or at least not in the know to the same extent, because they're not happy. We're often not happy with our leaders, are we? Politicians, teachers, doctors, pastors, lecturers, tutors, parents, anybody really, with some sort of authority over us. It would seem that these people are barely ever right about anything. Everyone is an armchair expert in a surprising number of fields. My father, for example, was the best armchair rugby player in Scotland. (laughs) And if only the national team had listened, we'd never have lost, ever. Another example. Experts in parenting rarely have children. I was an expert in parenting, actually. And then I had children, whereupon my expertise mysteriously vanished. I know not how. In the course of the next few weeks, we will marvel at the Israelites' capacity for ingratitude, grumbling, and blame-laying. But we shouldn't really balk at the moat in their eye when we have logs in our own, should we? Very little has changed, and nothing will, until we acknowledge fully that God is in control. Let's read on. Chapter 5, verse 22, to chapter 6, verse 13. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, but by, sorry, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the Lord I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. So the Israelites are cross with Moses. And in verse 22, it's fair to say that Moses is pretty cross with God. You have not rescued your people at all. Moses is frustrated because from his perspective, he's fulfilled his side of the bargain and it has spectacularly backfired. God, by Moses' way of it, has simply failed to do what he said he'd do. However, if we look back at chapter 3, we see that God clearly said in verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. And after that, he, Pharaoh, will let you go. So far, Moses has done the two things God asked of him. He's spoken to the Israelite leaders and he has spoken to Pharaoh. But God has not yet performed his wonders. His timetable is rarely ours, it would seem. Moses' frustration is so human and so easy to relate to. My sense is that those of us who are Christians, like Moses, sometimes feel that we've done our bit. We've been obedient to what we believe the Lord has called us to do. We've worshipped him. We've read and studied his word. We pray. We have endeavoured to treat those around us with grace and compassion. We've done countless acts of kindness. We've given to the poor and needy. We've tithed our incomes. And yet, we don't seem to be enjoying any benefits. Circumstances haven't changed the way we wanted or expected. And certainly not within the time frame we'd anticipated. And it's at this point that we sometimes hear of people struggling with their faith. What's it all for? What's the point? Well, I don't have any pat answers. All I will say is that relationship with God is not for sissies. Relationship with anybody is not for sissies. The most rewarding aspects of life, usually our relationships with others, will certainly present us with as much challenge as joy. We really get it wrong if we expect relationship with God to mean no further trials and tribulations, no more sadness, no more difficulty, everything being nice because he loves us and we love him. Those of us who call him Lord have handed over control of our lives to him. I was struck last week when Toby said, we can say yes, Lord, and we can say no, but we cannot say no Lord, is he trustworthy or not? He says he is. Do we believe him or do we only believe him when everything in the garden is rosy and he is behaving as we would wish? God, like Aslan in the Narnia Chronicles, is not a tame lion jumping through hoops at our command. In this passage, God underlines who he is, Yahweh. Lord, the name which means I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. 
He repeats it several times and explains that Moses' ancestors knew him as God Almighty, El Shaddai, but now he is calling himself by his ultimate name, Yahweh, Lord. In verses 6 to 8, God says, I will seven times. Let's read the verses. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. These are all inspiring, jaw-dropping promises, but at no point does God say, I will do it now. In fact, he makes it perfectly clear in these early chapters that a lot must happen before he does any of it, but he promises to do it. So poor old Moses reports back to the Israelites, and it still doesn't go down too well. They still say, yeah, whatever, and to be honest, I think I would have done too if I'd been there. Then, after yet another resounding failure with his people, God tells him to go back to Pharaoh again. And Moses objects with the old stutter excuse again. We've been here before. I'm delighted to tell you that verses 14 to 30 of chapter 6 consist of a list of names pertaining to Moses' and Aaron's family tree. Do read those at your leisure. Let's read the first six verses of chapter 7, and then we're done. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just what the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. 80. I'm 57 on Tuesday, and I'm exhausted just reading about it. Much has been written about verse 1 of this chapter, in which Yahweh, the Lord, says he will make Moses like a god to Pharaoh, and we don't have time to go into it here. For our purposes, it's probably enough to know that Moses goes to Pharaoh in the Lord's stead, and with his absolute authority, and what God has said to him several times, seems finally to get through to Moses. We hear no more about stuttering and about being unworthy from this point on. He just gets on with what the Lord has told him to do. This is a passage about several things. The arrogance and defiant cruelty of Pharaoh, the trust and obedience of Moses in the face of seemingly worsening circumstances, and finally, it's about the nature of God, his sovereignty, his patience, and his promises which are the same now as they were then and will always be. We serve a mighty God. We serve Yahweh. This same God gave his only son to die on our behalf so that we could enjoy a relationship with him forever. 
The same God who delivered his people Israel from Pharaoh has adopted us as sons and daughters. And he loves us wholly and perfectly, knowing everything about us, good and bad, beautiful and ugly, in all our petulant, deeply unattractive, foot-stamping self-obsession. His love for us is unrelenting, it's unconditional, it's passionate, and it's unswerving. It is so much more than any of us will ever deserve. So may the glory and honor be his forever. Let's stand.